Good morning, friends. Hey, I am Perry. I'm on staff at the Boulder campus. Can you believe it's July 31st? Are you ready? <laughs> it's, it's unwinding quickly, this summer thing. Well, it's a delight to be here with you this morning as we continue on in this series that we've been in all summer long. And it's a delight for me personally just to be able to come out and be with you here today because I love coming to Erie, love being a part of worship with you all this morning. You know, one of the most exhilarating feelings in life is a hole in one. I'll never forget the time I was on a local course and I was the first in my group to go on a par three. I lined everything up just right, made great contact with the ball, watched as it made its way, and I knew from that moment that this could be special. See, it went perfectly between the blades of the windmill and then it went into that the plastic tube that sent it down to the lower level and it ricocheted off a twig that I didn't even know was there and into the bottom of the cup. It was incredible. Um, I am not a golfer at all. My game belongs at the putt-putt range, not the actual driving range or anywhere near a real golf course. Golf can be intimidating, and it can be something that feels exclusive. And there may not be an even a better example of this in all of golf than Augusta National Golf Course. Even if you're not a golfer, you probably have heard of the Masters Tournament. It's a place where the winner gets the green jacket. Augusta is a private course. It'll cost you about $40,000 up front to belong to Augusta, and then several thousand dollars every year after that, which... I've been told it's not actually that much money for a place like Augusta. I'll take their word for it. But before you get your checkbook out, you should know that as a privately held course, it's not someplace where you can just show up and walk on. There are about 300 members who each have their own green jacket, and they are on a list that's unpublished. So we don't even know everybody who's on their list, but of the names that are public, you read people who are like household names, billionaires, People who have made it big in the business world, professional athletes of other sports, professional, I mean, politicians, people like that, people who are household names. These are big shots. These are the people who belong to Augusta. There's something that can feel true to life about that kind of a situation where only the big shots really belong. The people who have achieved a lot, who have acquired a lot, accumulated a lot, they're the ones who really get by in life. Try just walking into a boardroom meeting in your company and just say, I just want to show up and see what y'all are doing. And that's an invitation-only kind of thing. And life can feel exclusive. It can feel intimidating in that kind of way. So as we gather for worship this morning, we should just be reminded and delight and celebrate in the fact that God's kingdom operates according to a very different set of rules. God's kingdom is not about achieving and acquiring and accumulating our way to the top. And to see that, we're going to turn to John chapter 4 this morning. So I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. You know, part of this series is that we're looking at unfamiliar stories. And I, I'll just tell you right now, I'm probably violating that this morning. Because this isn't so unfamiliar if you've been in the church or you've, you've been around God's word for a while. You probably are very familiar with this story. But we're going to look at it and see an example of faith worth following this morning in an unlikely person. And along the way, we will definitely see character traits of God that we can trust as well. 
So let's dig in to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then parenthetically, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so this is early on in Jesus' ministry, and at this point, he knows that it's a bad thing for the Pharisees and other religious leaders to know about his ministry. He doesn't want to be on their radar because he knows that that could delay what he's trying to accomplish. That could obscure it. That could obstruct it. So Jesus knows he needs to put some distance between himself and those people, those religious leaders. So he moves north. Now I have a map here. Don't get caught up in the details of it. But this is just to show you some of the details of where Jesus is going. Jesus is in and around Jerusalem. And then he's headed up north. So he's passing through the region in the middle there called Samaria. John makes that comment, he had to pass through Samaria, which is an interesting comment because it, in a way he didn't have to pass through Samaria. During this time it was common for Jewish people, especially people who were really strict or trying to follow God's law, that they would go around Samaria on either direction. We'll look at why that is the case in just a minute. But John says that Jesus has to go through Samaria and that he lands in this spot for a rest break that was once upon a time land that belonged to a man named Jacob. And right there in that very spot, there's a well. So the dirt underneath Jesus' feet has a history. And now Jesus is about to run into a person who has a history of her own. Let's keep reading. As a woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John tells us. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the Samaritans and the Jews have a long and colored history. They both trace their heritage going all the way back to the likes of Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, and then this man who's um, mentioned in the story, Jacob. Noah, and, and I already said that, but Moses is also another key figure that they both trace their heritage back to. But the Samaritans had been part of a split history from Israel about the 700s BC. The Assyrian Empire had come in to bring, as a, an act of God's judgment against Israel, and it carried people off into exile. But some of the people were left behind. Meanwhile, the Assyrians liked to bring in people from other lands as well to mix them in with the populations so that their cultural distinctives would disappear. That's who these Samaritans are. They were people who were left in the land when the rest of them were carried off into exile. And they had intermixed with people from other backgrounds and beliefs. Now, I said that they had some common things with the, the Jews in terms of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. But... They also had their own version of those stories, that they believed in Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they had their own accounts of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So ethnically, they have some differences with the Jews. Theologically, they have some differences with the Jews. 
But the one thing that they have in common, the Jews and the Samaritans alike, is a common animosity toward each other. That's strike one against this woman. Strike two is the fact that she's a woman. In this day, Jewish men were encouraged to not even associate or talk to a woman in public, especially when it's a single Jewish man with a single Samaritan woman. Jesus seems to be either unaware or just unconcerned of those social conventions, though. So he says, give me a drink, and she says, in essence, why are you talking to me? Let's keep reading. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This verse, verse 10, is so critical for all of the conversation that Jesus has with this woman. Because Jesus is laying out the terms of the conversation here in this verse. He says, if you knew the gift of God, that's one thing, and who it is that's talking to you right now, asking you for a drink, that's Jesus' identity. That's the second thing. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water, in the basic sense of the word, is just water that's free-flowing. Water you would find in a spring. Water you would find in a river or a stream. It's not stagnant water. So Jesus is offering this kind of water to her, and this is going to be key in the rest of the passage. Well, the woman looks at him confused, and verse 11 says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's puzzled because Jesus is standing offering her something, but meanwhile he's offering her it with empty hands. He doesn't have another water jar that he's holding on to that says, hey, I have some living water for you here. But he's offering living water with nothing to show for it. So she's naturally confused and asks this question or makes a statement. You have nothing to draw water with and the water is deep. But then she says, this water, this water here was good enough for Jacob. Jacob is the one who would be renamed Israel, the one who would have the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes that would comprise the nation of Israel. Jacob is the patriarch. Jacob is a figure that they were very proud of on both sides, Jewish and Samaritan. This well, this water was good enough for Jacob and his sons, and it was good enough for his vitality, his livelihood, his livestock. But it's not good enough for you? It's as though she's saying, who do you think you are? And that's exactly what Jesus wants her to think. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus makes the distinction between the water that he's offering and the water that she thinks she needs out of the ground. The water in the well will satisfy, will quench her thirst temporarily. But the water that Jesus offers gives an eternal value. It quenches an eternal thirst. In fact, it's related to eternal life itself. This water that Jesus has will create inside of a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to come here again. She doesn't get it. How could she be so dense? I actually hope that's not what you're thinking. 
Jesus' ministry is full of examples where people don't get it. The disciples, the people who spent the most time with Jesus, commonly did not get what he was talking about. I think in my own life about how slow I can be to grasp who Jesus is, what he truly offers. No, we should not be judgmental towards this woman, but we should actually be able to relate with her. So what is this living water that Jesus is offering? Well, we're helped if we turn a couple pages to the right to John chapter 7. This is a different conversation, a different aspect of Jesus' ministry. This time he's in Jerusalem, but he just says in the middle of a feast, he stands up and proclaims to a crowd, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice the common language here. And then John cracks the code for us. John says this, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thank you, John. Living water, the gift of God, is none other than the Holy Spirit that comes inside and dwells inside of everyone who believes in Christ. Later on in the book of Acts, it will talk about the gift of the Spirit that has been poured out even to the Gentiles. This is common imagery and language for God's Spirit. And this is what Jesus is offering the woman. And this is what she is failing to grasp. But yet, here is where finally we begin to see something in this woman that is worth imitating. And I would just call it a receptive heart. A receptive heart just means a heart that is open. It's a heart in a dictionary definition that's willing to consider or accept new suggestions and ideas. Now this woman, in order to see how her heart might be receptive, think of the other things that she could have done at this point or even before this point. This woman could have just walked away and said, why are you talking to me? You shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. I'm a woman, you're a man. But instead, she stays engaged. She listens to what Jesus is speaking. That might seem so basic, so fundamental, but think of how many ways we are bad at listening in our day and age. We often want to communicate our own point, make sure that our own perspective is communicated to the other person we're in a conversation with. But this woman, while she's conversing with Jesus, is willing to listen to Jesus. And even though she doesn't completely understand what he's offering, she still says, give me this water. A receptive heart is a heart that listens. But a receptive heart, in order to really understand what Jesus is offering with this living water, needs to be more deeply in tune with a deeper thirst. And that's where Jesus goes next. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. This woman, for whatever reason, has burned through relationship after relationship after relationship. It's really easy for us and tempting to speculate to try to understand what kind of a woman this must be to end up in this kind of a situation. I'd like to resist that. 
and instead just say, this is a woman who, even though she came with an empty water jar, is weighed down by far greater burdens than that. When this woman comes to the well, she's carrying massive loads of shame. She's carrying secrets with her. She's carrying things that she hopes nobody else knows about her, yet Jesus has just opened it wide open in front of them. Earlier, John had said that it was about the sixth hour, which in our own language translates to about noon. It was common for women to come to a well. It was common for women to come to a well to draw water just like she does, but not in the middle of the day. They would come in the cool of the day, in the morning or in the evening, and not alone. They would come in groups. It would be like a social kind of event. But for some reason, which we're getting a glimpse of now, this woman has decided that she's not allowed in that company. She doesn't belong. And she's alone, and she's carrying these burdens that Jesus has just opened up so that she might be in better tune with her deeper thirst. A receptive heart is a heart that listens well, listens well to the words of Jesus, but a receptive heart also listens to what's going on in our own deepest longings inside of our hearts. And Jesus has just taken her there. Jesus has exposed a truth about her life that's painful, but she's still engaged in the conversation. And now he's about to expose more truth. The woman brings it up, though. Let's keep reading. She says this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So she raises a question, and whether she's just trying to dodge what Jesus had just raised, which could be a possibility, or whether she's just asking an honest question, which could be a possibility, or maybe a combination of both, she asks about this puzzling problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. This well that's situated in Samaria is at the base of a mountain called Mount Gerizim. You can actually visit there today, and what's likely this well still remains. A little interesting fact there. But Mount Gerizim, that's right in the scene of this conversation where Jesus is talking to this woman, was the place where the Samaritans had built their temple where they believed that was the proper place for them to worship. Meanwhile, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, and that's where the temple was. So they have a dispute between them, and Jesus and this woman now are talking about where the proper location is. And Jesus downplays the whole debate. And he says, the day's coming and is now here where neither, neither is right. It's not about where, but it's about how. We worship in spirit and in truth. So some translations capitalize the S there on spirit, and I think that's right. 
that this is a reference in light of the gift of God, the living water that we've looked at earlier, that this is a reference to God's spirit that is inside of those who believe. That God's spirit is the one who testifies to truth so that we might worship God in truth, knowing who he is. Jesus says that true worshipers have the spirit of God. But he doesn't completely dismiss the conversation or dismiss her question because he also says that you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. Jesus is a Jew. So, of course, he's going to point her to the correct way. And here we again, we see another aspect of a receptive heart, that a receptive heart is willing to be corrected. She's already had truth exposed about her morality, about her life, and now she's having truth exposed about her theology. But she stays engaged in the conversation. These are some of the key marks of what it means to have a receptive heart. And now we're going to see another element of what it looks like to stay engaged with Jesus. Okay, let's keep reading. Just about then, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. Uh, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember verse 10, those two elements that Jesus had raised. One, the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, but then second of all, and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is that second aspect. She pretty much dismisses Jesus and just saying, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll straighten all of this out. And Jesus' response, literally, in the original language is, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus is revealing his true identity to her. That he is this Messiah. He is this one who's long expected and anticipated. The one hoped for. The one who would settle all of these disputes. He is that person. She is eyeball to eyeball with him in this very moment. What an incredible picture that Jesus would reveal to her. Not only the gift of God, but who he truly is. And she doesn't run away from it. She actually entertains the possibility that it could be true. And now she takes the all-important step of responding. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, "Why do you what do you seek or why are you talking with her?" So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the woman sees the disciples coming back, and that's enough for her to feel uncomfortable in that place. So she drops the water jar and leaves. Notice how she could have filled the water jar up and said, It was really nice to meet you, sir. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your trip. Have a nice day. But she does not do that. She leaves her water jar there empty and goes back to the town to say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Do you think that's really a topic she wants to address with other people? You think she really wants to raise all of this baggage from her past? 
But yet, she's so convinced by this extraordinary encounter, this man who would know her in that way, something that no one had any business knowing about her. She's so overwhelmed by that that she's willing to disclose, hey, this guy knows everything about me. Can this be the Christ? See, a receptive heart not only listens, not only listens to the deepest longings of our own heart, not only listens to truth and embraces truth, even when it means correcting what we thought was true, but a receptive heart responds in action. A receptive heart takes action. It takes a step. And we see this woman who just moments earlier didn't even know who she was talking to. This woman who just moments earlier thought she was just coming to fill up her well like she probably did on a routine basis in the heat of the day, day after day after day. And now she's come back having an encounter that is truly life-transforming. Well, what happens next is a conversation that's very parallel to this conversation Jesus has just had with the woman. Because the disciples had gone into the town to buy bread, and they come back to Jesus now, and they urge him to eat. And Jesus makes this curious comment about, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And they're puzzled, like, what, where did Jesus get this food from? And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus has this conversation that the disciples just flies over their heads because they don't understand what he's truly getting at. But then Jesus implores them to raise their heads up, to look, because the harvest is ripe. And at that very moment, the way this is written, we can tell that what's going on is the townspeople, the Samaritans, are coming to the well. The harvest is ripe. And then John lets us know the fruit of this great harvest. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is indeed the Savior of the world. The proclamation that Jesus is who he says he is. We heard about your experience, your firsthand encounter, and that brought us to him. But now we've had a firsthand encounter of our own. This woman has become the first and prime example of an evangelist in John's gospel. What a beautiful picture. What courage that she has. If we were to read a chapter previous to this, in John chapter 3, we would have noted that there was a conversation that Jesus had with somebody who, if he lived in our day, would have a green jacket from Augusta, a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man of status. He was a high achiever, a man of prestige. He was a man with a lot of reputation. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus wants the cover of darkness so no one knows what's going on. He wants his conversation to be private. Jesus, in broad daylight with this woman, under, uncovers what's private. He exposes her past and even her present. Jesus then, in broad daylight, reveals who he is to this woman and the gift that he offers. 
And this woman in broad daylight goes and proclaims to her town, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This woman had so little to lose. This woman had no status. She had no reputation to maintain. She wanted to run away from her reputation. And she was willing in the moment to respond the way a receptive heart responds. We don't have to achieve our way because we can't achieve our way. We don't acquire our way because we can't acquire our way. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. I think if you are to wrap up all of this, what I would just leave us with is that there's nothing that can get between a receptive heart and the Savior of the world. Nothing can get between that. Nothing can get in the way of a receptive heart and the Savior of the world. The one quality that everyone must have in order to belong to God's kingdom is belief. There's a massive difference between a country club and God's kingdom. And there's nothing that can get between a heart that is receptive to the gospel and the savior of the world, this title that the Samaritans gave Jesus. What an incredible picture and encouragement for those of us who are here this morning who already believe. We can just be reminded by this passage of the gratitude that we should have to God for the fact that we have something that we could never have achieved. That God has given us hearts to respond to him by belief so that we might belong to his kingdom. What a beautiful thing. And this morning, if you're here and you, you don't know, you've never understood this gift of God or the identity of the one who was speaking to this woman, maybe this morning is a time where you could ask for a drink. You could sample, you could taste that living water so that you might have within you a spring of life welling up to eternal life within you. The other part of this series is we're looking at character traits of God we can trust. Here are some things that we can trust. First of all, we see a God of compassion. We see a God who reaches out to people who are well outside the margins. Jesus had no business in one sense, of talking to this woman who's a Samaritan with a history. But yet Jesus delights in reaching those who the world has discarded. Jesus delights in reaching all of those, people like us. Remember, God so loved the world. That's just a few verses before this passage. This is the world. The people on the margins, the people who are excluded, the people who are the outsiders, those are the ones who God goes after. Second of all, we see a God who knows us. We see a God who knows everything about this woman, and he knows everything about our lives. The things that we would prefer that nobody else knew about. We would rather forget them ourselves. But yet this God still knows them, and he still loves us. What an incredible God we serve. And then finally, we also see a God who initiates Jesus didn't start every conversation he entered into. But we do know that in a big picture thing, that God has initiated. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8. He said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has taken the first step. He's given us the water and he holds it out 
for us to just grab onto and to drink. I pray that we would all have receptive hearts this morning to whatever he might be calling us to do, that his name might be glorified, and that in this we might see an example worth imitating and a God worth trusting. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are the God who gives us all that we have and everything that we need, demonstrating your love. And there's no greater gift than this living water that you have given, Father. I pray for my friends in this place this morning, Lord, that we would be people with receptive hearts. This isn't something we just grit our teeth and try harder to to have, but it's something that is a gift of your grace. So God, I pray that you would give it. I pray you'd soften hearts that are hard. I pray you would open eyes that are closed and ears that are shut. Lord, help us to understand the true gift of God. Help us to know the true identity of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be the people who follow you for your glory and for our good. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.